Good morning. We're going to go ahead and get started this morning. Again, I too want to welcome you here to Northwest. We're excited about today and what the Lord's going to do. In 1990, I was a freshman in college at a college in North Carolina. I'm not going to say the name. I just was a freshman and I came from Connecticut. And at the college that I went to, it was a Christian college, which was required that you had to take Old Testament and you had to take New Testament to graduate. So in the fall semester of 1990, as a college freshman, I enrolled into Old Testament, Introduction to Old Testament. And it was in that class that I had a missionary professor who told me that the Bible, the Old Testament, was largely a satire. It was written what God could have done, but not what God actually did. Well, needless to say, I got four A's that semester and one F. I failed introduction to Old Testament, and I stand here as one of your pastors and elders. (laughs) And I was really, all of a sudden, really confused about Christianity, about the Bible. I said, this guy told me it's just a story, it's a picture. Well, what I'm grateful for, what I'm grateful for are the friends that rallied behind me at the school that I was at and showed me that there is no dichotomy between biblical fidelity and the gospel and academics. And I'm grateful that there is an institution. I later went to work for the college that I went to. And I'm grateful after seeing what I saw that there is a college today called Cedarville University that stands on the truth of God's word to equip people to send them out all over the world, whatever your profession is, to engage the world with the gospel, to raise up a nation of missionaries, to send them out and do exactly what God's called us to do. When I was in Southeastern Seminary, I later met a guy named Thomas White. And as I was there, as I met Thomas White, I met him on the the football field, intramural football. Now, I'm connecting this, hold on with me. So here we are playing flag football together. My team always lost, Thomas's team always won. Always won. Well, this is a neat thing. Just recently, this past summer, Thomas White was elected as the president of Cedarville University and I just, I just think that there is no better person to lead this college to help people understand what it means to have a relationship with Christ, to be gospel-centered in all areas, in all areas of life. And so this past summer, July 1st, 2013, Thomas White was elected as the 10th president of Cedarville University. There is a table outside that you can stop and take a look at what Cedarville does and who they are. Cedarville University is a Christ-centered learning and community, equipping students for lifelong leadership and service through an education marked by excellence and grounded in biblical truth. And like I said before, I can think of no better person to lead Cedarville and also to be here today to speak to us and teach to us from God's word than Thomas White. And so I'd love for you to give him a round of applause as he comes out. Thomas, glad that you're here. And I really appreciate you, man. Thank you, brother. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to Matthew chapter 18, Matthew chapter 18. That's where we're going to be looking this morning. We're going to be looking primarily at verses 21 through 35, but I've got to back up and give you some intro on those verses before we get to that actual parable that Jesus tells. Now, I'm thrilled to be here, thrilled to be at Cedarville, and so not to give you an infomercial, but let me just tell you a little bit about why we do what we do so you can pray for us, and that's the the reason I tell you this, is that... 50 to 80%, depending on which study you look at, of people who grow up in the church go to college, and when they go to college during their freshman or sophomore year, they walk away from the church. 50 to 80% of your sons and your daughters who are in church 
will walk away from the church during their freshman or sophomore year of college. It's because we have a country where to think higher education means that you have to learn to think critically, even critically of the Bible, and that if you want to be respected by the educated elite, then you can't hold to the fundamentals of the faith. There are several schools, but one of those schools is Cedarville, where we don't believe it's intellectual compromise to hold to the fundamentals of the faith. And so we have a school that's in Ohio of over 3,000 students. Our sole mission, and if ever they go, standing firm on the truths that we find in God's revelation to us, telling people about an exclusive Savior, Jesus Christ, who can lead them and reconcile them to a holy God who loved them enough to send his son to die on a cross. So that if they're engineers, nurses, in the public schools, wherever they may go, they're going to take that gospel message with them to change the world. That's what we're all about, is increasing faith, not decreasing faith. We learn how to think critically, but we also learn that God's revelation is the source of all knowledge, and that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by him. Now, if you would pray for us, the goal for me as I start there at Cedarville is not that 20 years from now, Cedarville will still exist. That's not what I want. I want to have a place that is so on fire for God that 3,000 students graduate every four years, and they go out living radical Christian lives, centered on the gospel in such a way that we change the Midwest, we change the country, and through partnerships with other kingdom-minded people, we change the world for Jesus Christ to make his name great. That's a task that no one human or any group of humans can pull off without God's help. So I would covet your prayers if you would pray for us as we seek to accomplish that mission. And if you have any questions, we have over 100 different majors. Come see the table. End of infomercial. It's time to preach. I'm just a country preacher. Is it okay if I just preach? Will you all, y'all be okay with that today? So university stuff aside, Matthew chapter 18. You guys know this, but the book of Matthew's first book in the New Testament. So if you're figuring out where to go to, find the New Testament, hit Matthew, very first book. As you look at the book of Matthew, it's written and titled by Matthew. How do we know who Matthew is? Well, it tells us in verses 9, 9 and verses 10, 3, a little bit about Matthew. He was the tax collector. All of us don't like tax collectors, so probably not the most popular guy in the world, but yet he writes this book. And as he writes this book, you would see that it's written for a Jewish audience. Now, how do you know it's written for a Jewish audience? Well, he does things like he says kingdom of heaven instead of kingdom of God. Because if you remember, they didn't want to pronounce the name God. They thought that was offensive, so they would use different names. And so even in our passage today, you're gonna see the word kingdom of heaven because they didn't want to use the name God. They thought that might be disrespectful or irreverent, and so they would substitute for that. So writing to a Jewish audience, he has five discourses and five narratives. We're picking up in the fourth discourse. So we're the majority of the way through the book, but not all the way through the book. And as you look at Matthew chapter 18, the context to the parable that we get to is back up to verse 15 and look, and it talks about church discipline. In church discipline here, it says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his faults. Now, you all remember the story. It says, if somebody sins against you, you go and you tell them. If they don't listen, you grab somebody else and you go back and you tell them with a brother. If they won't listen to you after you go back with a brother, well, then you're gonna eventually tell it to the church. The church is gonna come together and they're gonna discipline that person and they're gonna say, you're not acting like a believer, you're not one of us, and so at that point in time, you have to be taken off. But as they're telling this story, Peter, who is one of my favorite characters in all of Scripture because he asks those questions that I always wanna ask but would never raise my hand to ask, he's thinking, and, and he's got his thinking cap on, and he's processing what Jesus is telling them about church discipline. 
and he's perhaps got this thought in mind. So if I go to somebody and perhaps they said something about me, perhaps they said, uh, you know, he smells funny. And so he goes to them and he says, hey, listen, you talk bad about me. I don't, I don't like that. And they go, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I won't do that again. He says, okay, I forgive you. Matthew 18, right? So he goes about his business and, and the next week in the church service or whatever, if you try to modernize it, he goes to him and, and he realizes that, that that person said something about him again. And you just put me in the instance. You know, he said, I smell bad. I didn't like that. So the next week, the guy says, he smells bad and, and he's just not athletic at all. He's completely uncoordinated and, and, and that's, that's not cool. And so I go to the guy and I say, look, you know, I was a world karate champion. I used to own and operate four karate schools. I played flag football. I played basketball. You can't talk bad about me like that, all right? If you do, we're going to lay on hands without prayer, all right? I mean, you see, you see where we're going, right? And he says, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Forgive me. All right, so we walk away, and next Sunday I come back, and the guy says, well, he's not smart. He smells funny. He's not athletic, and, and his wife's ugly. All right, we're done, right? And Peter asked Jesus the question, how many times, Lord, before I pull out my sword and whack his ear off, right? Isn't that what he's really asking? And so he's wanting to know, can you identify with that? Of course we can. What's the saying? Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. This is our American culture, right? We don't want somebody to get the upper hand on us, so if they do something wrong against us, well, one time you'll get away with it. But you're not gonna get away with it more than one time. And so look at what happens here as they're talking about this. And it says there in verse 21, then Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? There's gotta be a limit to this. Now, Peter was the Old Testament scholar. He had studied all these things. He was a fisherman, but he'd read his Bible. And so, you know, looking back in the Old Testament, you would see in the book of Amos and in the book of Job, many different places where it would say, forgive somebody for three times, but not for four. Three times, but not for four. Over and over and over again. So Peter understands this, right? And so he's that super student. Anybody ever seen the student in the class that sits at the front, always has the answer, wants to get the teacher to give him the gold star for the day? And, and so Peter here, he's got the answer, right? He says, how often will I forgive him? As many as seven times? And you see there where he mentions seven times. He's thinking, the Old Testament says three. I've been around Jesus long enough to know that Jesus goes far beyond the Old Testament laws. So I'm gonna double that and add one for good measure. And Jesus is gonna give me my boy for the day. And so he says, seven times, Lord? Now, let's be honest. Would you forgive somebody seven times if they kept wronging you over and over and over again? Probably not, if we wanna be real with each other. We'd be pretty frustrated with that person at that point in time. But look at what Jesus says to him. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Now, some of your Bibles, if you're using the NIV, may say 77 times. There's a confusion over exactly whether it should be translated 70 times seven or seven, seven times. It doesn't matter. If you forgive somebody 77 times, who's gonna keep up with that list? Are you gonna run around with a notepad or your iPad mini and you've got your notes list? You know, okay, that's... All right, you stepped on my toe, that's 300. I mean, you're not gonna keep up with the list, right? That's not the point. There's two different ways you can look at this. 490 times would be 70 times seven. That just means an infinite number of times because you're not gonna keep a list. If it's 77 times, then perhaps it relates back to Genesis four. And in Genesis four, you'll remember back where Lamech was talking about Cain. And he said, if Cain should be avenged seven times for his murder, then Lamech should be avenged 77 times. And so perhaps there's a reference here back to that Old Testament where, where he's saying that. 
We're not sure. The answer to the question, though, after Jesus says 77 times is the parable that I want us to look at today. And in this parable, he starts off, and let's read here in verse 23. He says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Now here's our first scene in today's parable. The first scene is you have Jesus telling the story. He says, therefore the kingdom of heaven, we've already talked about that, could be compared to a king who wanted to settle accounts with a servant. And so you have this king set up and you have this servant down here. And when he began, he brought in one who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, how much is 10,000 talents? Honestly, we don't know. And so we can't really give you an exact figure, but it's always hard to think in an abstract way. So I'm gonna try to give you an exact figure. Just realize that this is an approximation, that this is not something you put in print in a book because somebody would criticize you for it. But a talent, what we know about a talent is that a talent is 20 years worth of wage. So depending on how much you grant that year's worth of wage is gonna affect your end number. So if you take one talent as 20 years worth of wages, then just say $30,000 to make it easy. $30,000 is not very much of a salary, but it keeps our number lower. $30,000 for one year's worth of wage. If you take that and you add that out to 10,000, then you're gonna end up with $6 billion. $6 billion is what this guy owed the king. Now it's even more impressive than this though. Because when it says 10,000 talents, what we really see happening here is 10,000 is the largest Greek number that exists. You remember in Revelation, it talks about 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands because there's no larger Greek number. And so talent is also the largest monetary bill. And so Jesus is combining the largest number with the largest amount of money and he's putting those two together and he's saying this servant owed the king a gazillion dollars. Now, I don't know what a gazillion dollars is. I'm pretty sure our government's gonna owe it in debt before it's over with, but I, I don't know how much it is, but it's big, okay? And so in your mind, you've got this servant who owes the king a gazillion dollars. And since he could not pay it, his master ordered him to be sold. He, his wife, his children, and all that he had in payment to be made. What he's not gonna get a gazillion dollars by selling them. That's not the whole point of what's happening. The point of what's taking place here is that there is a necessary punishment for the debt that is to be owed, and he's saying that punishment is to be enacted and they're to be sold along with the wife and children. So in verse 26, it says, the servant fell down on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Now you get the point of why I pointed out a gazillion dollars here? The servant falls down on his knees. He, he has nothing else he could do. And when he falls down on his knees, he said, give me time, I'll pay you back everything. His body is writing checks that, or his mouth is writing checks his body can't cash at this moment in time. There is no way he's gonna be able to pay back everything. If he worked his entire life, he's not gonna be able to pay back this amount of wage. It's just not possible. But he's crying out and he's asking for mercy. And then in verse 27, it says, out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him of the debt. Now think about this. Anybody out there struggle with these type of issues? Nobody wants to raise their hand? I'll raise my hand. I'll be honest. Here's, here's the deal. He mentioned flag football. I remember one play in flag football like it was yesterday. 
I was at middle linebacker on the flag football field. The quarterback from the other team was getting ready to throw a pass. He dropped back. As he dropped back in his pass, I dropped back. I remember looking and scanning the field, and he started to roll out to his right, to my left. As he was rolling out, I saw a receiver over here at the far corner, and he was running a flag pattern where he would cut in and he would cut back out. And as he began to cut in, I saw the quarterback's eyes looking at this receiver. And then I saw his shoulder lean back. And as I saw the motion lean back, I remember taking off as though he were throwing a scud missile, and I was going to be a Patriot missile intercepting that ball in the air. And I remember the ball taking off in flight. And as I ran with those bionic man sounds in my mind as I was trucking through, and and all of a sudden our corner jumped up and he tipped the ball. And I remember the ball coming off his hand and it was floating like a leaf falling from a tree in autumn. And I dove out and I grabbed a hold of that ball with both arms and cuddled it in like a newborn baby. And then my knees hit the ground, kind of like a bowling ball dropped before its time. And I bounced out of bounds. Oh, and I looked up and I looked to see everybody cheering at the greatest play ever made in the history of flag football at a seminary setting. And when I looked up, I saw this odd looking zebra doing this number. Now, demonstrating the flaw of Christian perfectionism, I showed him the ball. I showed him the divot that my knee made in the ground before I went out of bounds and bounced out of bounds so that he knew I was in bounds. Right there's the proof, and right here's the ball. I've got the ball. I was in bounds. You've got to call this an interception. And there he said, very next play, Quarterback drops back. He throws a pass over to the other side of the field in the corner of the end zone. They tie the game up, and they beat us in overtime, and that is the only flag football game I lost in seminary. To this day, it's that referee's fault. (laughs) Now, you think about this. I don't remember a handful of plays out of all of those years of playing flag football. I remember that one. I remember it vividly. Why? Why? It's because there's something inside of us that's wired or designed to remember the things we don't like even more than the things we do. You, you think about a person that you don't like, you may have had a thousand good memories with them, but you had one really bad one. What do you remember? The bad one. I say Benedict Arnold, what do you think of? Traitor. Why? Well, because that's what he did. He did a whole bunch of other things in his life, but... But that's what we remember, right? And so as we come to this passage and as we think about this, we've got to recognize the fact that our human nature is such that we remember the evil things that happen much more than we remember all of the positives. We want to exalt ourselves and we want to look down at everybody else and say, yeah, but remember he did this or remember he did that. And so here we see a story, a parable that Jesus is telling where he says, out of pity for the guy, he released him and forgave him. Now, to try to put this in modern-day context, because it's difficult, right? This is a parable Jesus is telling it. Anybody remember the name Bertie Madoff? You remember the name Bertie Madoff, right? Bertie Madoff had this Ponzi scheme where he had taken a whole bunch of people's money, roughly about $18 billion worth of, of people's money he stole, and eventually he confessed it, and eventually he went to court. And everybody was ready to kill him. Now, imagine what would have happened if Bernie had shown up in court and he had gone before the judge and he had told the judge, judge, if you give me a little bit of time, I'll pay it off. 
And the judge had looked at Bernie Madoff and had said, Bernie, it's okay, I forgive you all of your debt. What would have happened? Well, we would have had weekend at Bernie's taking place in New York City right after that, right? There would have been a whole bunch of people dragging him around behind a boat and all, just an old movie, never mind. But a whole lot of things would have been happening to Bernie that would not have been good. It would have been bad because we want justice. But if we really think about it, we really don't want justice, do we? Because if we get justice, that means we're gonna be separated from a holy God forever because that's what justly we deserve. Look at what it says here as we continue on in verse 27. Out of pity, the master of that servant released him and forgave the debt. But then in verse 28, we see our second scene. That same servant went out and he found one of his fellow servants. Now, you'll notice fellow servants is in this passage four times. And so we've transitioned here from that relationship of a king to a servant to a fellow servant relationship. The fellow servant who owed him a hundred denarii. He went out, he found his fellow servant who owed him a hundred denarii and seizing him began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went to put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Here's our second scene. And the second scene is that this servant who has just been forgiven goes out and he finds another servant who owes him 100 denarii. And when he looks at this 100 denarii, what you're looking at, let me get my note card to make sure I get it right for you, is 100 days wage. So at five days, at 20 weeks, if you multiplied that out at 15 hours a day, which is $30,000 a year, it would be $120 a day or $12,000. So calculating it on the same scale, we go from $6 billion to $12,000. And here you have this servant who he goes out and he finds a fellow servant and he grabs this fellow servant and he begins to choke him and he puts him in a chokehold and he says, pay me what you owe me. And all of a sudden this fellow servant falls down and it says he falls down and when he looks at him, he says, have patience with me and I will pay you. Now, how many of us owe $12,000 for something? $12,000 is not six billion or a gazillion dollars. It's a reasonable rate that could be paid back in time if given the opportunity. And yet this fellow servant refused and he went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. That fellow servant didn't remember the very grace that he was granted when his other fellow servant fell on his knees and said, have patience. Same words he entered. The same hand where he reached up and said, oh king, have patience with me is now the same hand he's taking and choking a fellow servant with. Look at what happens here as we move to scene three. It says there in verse 31, when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported it to the master, all that had taken place. And the master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And you should not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all of his debt. Now hear what happens in the story in the parable that Jesus is telling is the fellow servants looking around, see what takes place. They go back to the king and they say, king, you'll never believe what happened. You gave him a gazillion dollars. You showed grace. He turns around, he chokes the guy. He sends him to prison over a small amount of money and the king calls him back in and he says to him in bold, harsh words, you wicked servant. And then he sends him to the jailers. But a better translation for the word jailers here that he sends them to is to the torturers. So think in your own mind, Jack Bauer. All right? 
He sends him to 24, Jack Bauer. And Jack Bauer, anybody in here like the dentist? If, do I have any dentists in here? I'm sorry if I have a dentist in the room. I, yeah, I'm not a huge fan of dentists. I can't even use a Dremel tool because every time I turn a Dremel tool on, my mouth begins to hurt because I think dentist. Yeah, when I go to the dentist's office and sit down in that chair, they pull in that cart and I promise you, in my mind, it says Dr. Kevorkian on the side of the cart and, and it says torture tools. And, and I really do think Jack Bowers, he begins to pull out drills and say, open your mouth with a big smile on his face. And, and, and that's my view of torture is to go have somebody drill in my mouth with a power tool while I'm sitting in a chair, gripping the sides so tightly that my fingers are gonna leave permanent indentions and my knuckles are completely white with no blood flow. I mean, that, that's what I think of. He says, send him to the torturers. He's saying, send him to Jack Bauer or to the Kevorkian dentist office. That's where he gets to go. That's the punishment. Now, don't make too much out of this parable because as we, as we walk back through it, you remember what a parable is, right? It's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. It usually has one point, but every part of it's not to be applied to create a theology. So the point of this parable is about forgiveness. It's not about your eternal security. And so he's not saying here you could be forgiven and then you could lose your salvation. He's talking about forgiveness, and that's the main point of the entire parable. And as you look at this parable and you see what he says, we come to the main verse in all of it, and that's verse 35. In verse 35, he says, and this is the interpretation back to the entire thing. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. There's your key. So to walk back up and go through the parable just real quickly again. Who's the king? It's God. Who's the servant who owes a gazillion dollars? That's us. How do we owe a gazillion dollars? God created us. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve rebelled and sinned against a holy God. We inherited a sinful nature, and through that sinful nature, every last one of us rebels against God willfully and purposefully in our own life. If we walked down through the Ten Commandments and we looked at what the New Testament says, we have all violated those. You've had other gods before God. You may not have had a statue in your house, but you've had an idol that you put in the place of God and worshiped instead of worshiping God. You've all looked at a woman or a man and lusted and committed adultery in your heart, if not within your actions. You've all looked at something someone else had and coveted it and said, I really wish I had that. And in your heart, you're coveting. We've all looked at somebody with anger within our hearts as though we would kill them. And with that, Jesus says in the New Testament, you've committed murder in your heart already. And as we look at those 10 commandments and as we really look at ourselves, we realize that inside, it's like Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitfully wicked, who can know it? We think about all the things we've done against God. And when we look at that list, we realize that we're that servant. And in that servant's place, we owe a debt that is worth a gazillion dollars that we can never pay. All of our works, if we were to try to tip the scales into a positive balance, we could never be sure that we had tipped the scales. Because even when we do good works, sometimes we do good works just so other people will think good about us. And when we do that, that in and of itself is a bad motive. And so that good work then turns into a bad work because it's all about our self-centeredness rather than the gospel and rather than being about Jesus. And so we can't tip the scales. 
There's no way we could possibly ever work off the debt that we owe. So what do we justly deserve? We justly deserve to be separated from the God who created us that we rebelled against. And yet God Almighty from up above sent his son Jesus to die on a cross as the perfect lamb of God, as John the Baptist says, the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. So all those Old Testament sacrifices pointing forward to Jesus who would hang on a cross as our substitute, my substitute, and your substitute, who would pay the penalty for my sin and the penalty for your sin as he was there on the cross. And all we have to do to receive the free gift of salvation is to repent of our sins and place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And that allows us to be forgiven for a gazillion dollars worth of debt. You understand the parable? So then what do we do? We go out and we look at our fellow brothers and sisters, our fellow servants of God. And somebody does something to us, like makes a really bad call on the flag football field. And we remember it 18 years later. 18 years later. You there? If I don't forgive him from my heart, neither will God forgive me. And that's the kicker in this whole parable. Peter's asking a question. Lord, how many times? Seven times? Jesus says, Peter, you don't understand the beginning of grace. Because to understand the beginning of grace is to understand how much you've been forgiven. And once you understand how much you've been forgiven, you stop asking how much wrong has been done to me or how much should I forgive. And you start understanding that every time you offer a little smidgen of forgiveness for a little bitty debt, all you're doing is living a gospel-centered life and displaying the gospel through your actions. And as you should do that, you should desire to forgive more and more and more because the more you forgive, the more you display in some little finite way the infinite grace and forgiveness of God who has already forgiven us through Jesus on the cross. You say, wait a second, you don't know what happened to me. I don't. But I know this. If you don't forgive the other person, it's going to make you bitter rather than make you better. And the difference between being bitter and being better is I. Are you going to let it eat you up? Or are you gonna display the gospel and be better because you understand a little more the grace that God has given us on the cross? You say, wait a second, you don't get it. And you know, I've had people come to me and say, I've, I've been molested. I don't know what to say to you other than to say, no matter what wrong has happened, it's not as big a wrong as what we did against a holy and righteous God who forgave us on the cross. You say, you don't understand, my dad walked out on me when I was two. Yeah, but you've got a heavenly father that didn't walk out on you at all. You don't understand what my husband has done. Yeah, well, maybe I do, because you know, I'm one of those guys, and all of us guys have our problems, but I can't forgive him anymore. I'm just telling you what the word says. You realize if you say, I can't forgive my husband, or I can't forgive my wife, the text here says, If you can't forgive them from your heart, neither will our Father in heaven forgive you. Now, I don't wanna wanna scare you. I'm not trying to cause you to doubt your salvation this morning. I'm just trying to challenge you with what the text is challenging Peter with. And when Jesus tells the story, he's really challenging Peter to say, Peter, if you can't forgive from your heart, you've never been saved. 
you've never truly understood the grace of God. And so you say, I can't forgive. I say to you, yeah, you can. Because God's grace is sufficient and it's that great that you can forgive and you can be better because you can forgive. I don't wanna forgive. Uh, That may be the real problem. So I'm a university professor, right? Here's your homework assignment for the week. No test on it, just an honor system. Stand before God someday. If you're having trouble with forgiveness, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take out one sheet of paper and I want you to begin to list everything that person did against you. Write them down. You're making your list in your mind? You got it written down? I want you to take out another sheet of paper. And on that sheet of paper, I want you to write everything you've ever done against a holy and righteous God. Now, if you get through making that list of everything you've done against God and you're on the front side of the page, you've just started. Flip it over. You fill up the back side of the page. You keep thinking about it a little while and let the Holy Spirit bring to mind different things you've done against a holy and righteous God. And then you compare those two lists and you look at it. You see my point? It doesn't matter what happens to us in this life with fellow servants. It's a paltry little debt compared to the debt that we owe Almighty God from up above. Yeah, there's an illustration I wanna share with you. It's in April 18, 1942. 16 planes took off. As these 16 planes took off, it was on the raid that you might know as the Doolittle Raid. One of those guys that was in one of those planes, he wasn't flying it, but his name was Jacob DeShazar. If you remember back at this point in time when they flew this first bombing run, they didn't have enough gas, enough fuel in the planes to fly them, to bomb, and then to make it back. And so you had these 16 planes and everybody on these planes knew that they were on basically a suicide mission. They were gonna go drop bombs and then they were gonna have to ditch their planes and then they were gonna have to try to survive or make it back or they were just gonna die. They basically knew that's what the case was gonna be for most of them. And so that's what happened with this particular plane. Jacob de Césaire fell, and when he fell, he fell into enemy territory. He was captured. He was put into a prisoner camp. He was in this prisoner camp for a little over three years. And while he was sitting in this prisoner's camp, he said he watched as other prisoners that were there with him, fellow Americans, were beaten to death, were starved to death. He said that they would even talk about the fact that their heart would begin to ache and have this pain in it right before they were to die. And he realized that he hated these people outside the gates with such hatred because they could do such mean and cruel things and they were the enemy. And and he realized that this was not good. And so he told them, he said, I would love to get a Bible. Well, of course, they didn't give him a Bible. Eventually, though, the emperor came and looked at the conditions and he said, these conditions are horrible. Do something nice for them. And so they went and they got him a Bible. They didn't improve his conditions, but they gave him a Bible. He said he read through that Bible multiple times and he kept reading through that Bible and he read through the book of Acts and he read through the book of Romans and he got to a point where it says, if you call out upon the name of Christ and believe in him, you can be saved. And he realized at that moment the grace that Jesus had brought to forgive him of his sins and he turned his life over to Jesus. And even as a prisoner of war, he said he started praying for those who were outside because he had read in the Bible how Jesus hung on the cross because people killed him and he said father forgive them for they do not know what they do and so he prayed father forgive these soldiers for they do not know what they do he said he remembers one particular instance where he was in his cell and he was really hungry and they had beaten him and he just fell down on his knees and he began to pray and they came in they said get up get up and they began to beat him again and his heart began to hurt and he thought maybe this was it and he just began to pray and the lord comforted him with grace and he made it through that instance well eventually He was rescued. 
He came back to the United States. He got married. He went to school. And then what nobody could believe is that after he went to school, he decided he wanted to go be a missionary to Japan. In fact, he went back, and the first city he went to was the city he was held as a prisoner of war and held captive in Japan. And as he was there, he wrote a track that you can still find on the internet today called When I Was a Prisoner of War in Japan by Jacob de Cesar. He tells this story. As he ministered in Japan, he eventually planted about 16 different churches. He had thousands of people that came to know him, and one of the people that read his track, his name was Misuo Fuchida. Does that name ring a bell to anybody? He was the guy that led the attack on Pearl Harbor that began the American intervention into the war. This guy read that track and he said, how is it that this guy could forgive us when we did such horrible things to him? And so he began to read the Bible and he eventually wrote a book called From Pearl Harbor to Golgotha as he, began, as he was saved because of the testimony of Jacob de Caesar. You say, why should I forgive anybody? Here's a story about a guy who was a prisoner of war, who was beaten, who was treated horribly, who forgave them, went back, displayed the gospel. 16 different churches were planted. Thousands were saved. And even the guy who led the bombing raid on Pearl Harbor was eventually saved and others were impacted by the kingdom. Now, whatever has happened to you, that story may not lead to thousands of churches, thousands of people getting saved or churches being planted, but it may lead to somebody coming to know Jesus Christ. It may lead to you having a better relationship with Christ. And so here's my application to you today. As you make those lists, as you look, you've got the name in mind. If you have somebody that you need to forgive, you know exactly who that person is right now. And you have the excuse to contact them right now. Here's how. You got some crazy guy up front that likes to yell at people from the Bible who's telling you you need to go contact them. You can tell them it's a homework assignment. It's for you to contact them and just to say, hey, I forgive you. Write them an email, write them a note, leave a card, make a phone call. Dad, I don't even know that I really want to talk to you, but I want you to know I forgive you. Can you imagine what's going to happen after that? Why? Because God forgave me in Christ Jesus. You go home. You talk to your husband, you talk to your wife, and you say, look... I gotta quit getting hysterical and historical on you. You know that's how we do it, right? We get hysterical, then we get historical. I forgive you for everything that's past. Let's work from this point forward to honor God in our marriage together and display the gospel. Can you do that? Bitter or better? Difference is I. Whoever it is, long lost friend from high school that wronged you, some girl that stole your boyfriend in the ninth grade and you still harbor bitter feelings about that. Can you imagine what an email out of the blue could do for a gospel conversation? To say, hey, I was harboring bitterness, I forgive you. I, it's gone because I realize how much God forgave me. That's my challenge to you today. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear God, I pray that today we might just catch a glimpse of how much you have truly forgiven us for, Lord. Father, the understanding grace begins with understanding who you are and how holy you are and who we are and how sinful we are. And so today, Father, I just pray that you would allow us to get a glimpse of your glory and our sinfulness 
And then, Father, I pray that you would allow us to be obedient and whoever you may place on our hearts that we need to forgive, allow us to forgive them, Lord, and display in some small way the grace that you have displayed towards us. God, I pray ultimately that you would be glorified. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, please stand with me. I always think it's very interesting how speakers can come in from outside of our body and can speak truth into our lives in such a, a, a great way. And um, the Spirit of God can tell somebody right where a lot of us are and what we need to hear. And uh, I really believe that what Thomas shared this morning is what so many of us need to hear. You know, I, I say that because I have, I have the privilege of, of interacting with so many of you on a weekly basis and doing life with you. That's one of the greatest things about being able to, to shepherd a local group of people and love on them. And if there's one thing that I see come up time and time and time again, it's this issue of a lack of forgiveness, not understanding exactly what we've experienced at the foot of the cross uh, because of a God that loved us enough to, to, to give us his son. And I want to challenge you this morning. I'm going to be up front uh, after the service, and if, if, if that's you this morning, what a great opportunity you have today to make things right and to enjoy victory in that particular area of your life. And I'd love to pray with you about that. One sinner to another sinner, we say that on a regular basis. I, I, I would uh, and always uh, want to make sure that you understand when you come forward and you speak with one of our pastors, one of our elders, it's one sinner helping another sinner. It's not you coming down front and, um, uh, and confessing something that we don't struggle with. Uh, it's one sinner with another sinner. We'd love to, we'd love to do that with you uh, today. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the great privilege of being able to look into your word. And God, we're, we're, we're so much in awe of a book that is so old and yet is so relevant to today because this is where we live. So many of us live with unforgiveness. We, we live with bitterness and anger towards somebody that we live with, somebody that we have to interact with on a daily basis, or maybe somebody that has been out of our life for such a long time because we have failed to forgive. And God, I pray that uh, if you do nothing else today, that you would impress upon our hearts just to understand the enormity of the debt of which we have been forgiven as followers of Jesus. God, I pray that uh, you would bring conviction into our hearts of those that we have failed to forgive. We failed, uh, sometimes uh, we have failed to ask for forgiveness. God, I pray that you'd bring conviction. And God, I pray that you'd use uh, this message from your word this morning uh, to move in the hearts of uh, our people today and that we would do business where business needs to be done so that we will not be bitter people, but we will be better as we strive to be more closely conformed uh, to the image of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray this morning. Amen.